This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Jack Driscoll, author of the short story collection, 20 Stories. Also, what I tell my students, find somebody who loves your work because if they do, they will want it to be good and they will turn out to be the most honest readers that you'll ever have as opposed to somebody who is predisposed otherwise because they'll always find a reason not to. We'll be back with Jack Driscoll after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you're joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there's so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you, but it is not without expense to me in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love, but all told from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Jack Driscoll, author of 12 books, including the story collections Wanting Only to Be Heard, winner of the AWP Grace Paley Short Fiction Prize, and The World of a Few Minutes Ago, winner of the Society of Midland Authors Award and Michigan Notable Book Award. His stories have appeared in the Georgia Review, the Southern Review, Plowshares, and the Pushcart Prize Anthology, among other publications. Driscoll was the founding father of the Interlochen Center for the Arts Creative Writing Department and now teaches in Pacific University's low-residency MFA program. He lives in New England. 
His new short story collection, 20 Stories, is a selection of his best stories of the last two decades, along with several new ones. The tales reveal power relationships between parents and children, the hard scrabble life of the working class, the impact that place has on our lives, and the way all humans simply want to be heard. We began the discussion with Jack Driscoll talking about his vision for the collection, 20 Stories. I think I wanted to give just a sort of representative sampling of a of a career of writing short stories. And um, I, the, the hardest part of putting this together was choosing which stories uh, belonged, which ones I would pass. And I made the mistake early on of asking for advice. And mostly I just disagreed with, with um, suggestions. And uh, when I read back over it now, I do think maybe with a a story or two, um, I did choose well enough to give that whole a sense of, of a lifetime of writing short stories where, where they began uh, the best of each of these books, I hope, and then um, five new stories. And what do you what do you think that they together are saying to the reader? Well, I hope that the um, that the stories have changed. I'm a proponent of breaking through to that next place where you haven't yet arrived. And so I guard against self-imitation, against writing the same story over and over. It becomes too easy. It's um, almost like a template. And rereading the book, I noticed that thematically the themes changed considerably over time. Uh, I haven't actually thought about this until your question. And But when I look at the first book, Wanting Only to Be Heard, clearly the um, the theme of that book was the relationship between fathers and sons. Not the relationship between me and my father, but the relationship the fathers and sons. And I remember James Joyce saying uh, one time that um, in the end, the, uh, the Irish boys will reconcile with their fathers. And I'm not sure that ever happened with me. And uh, so it just became something I needed to write, and I did. When I look at the new stories, um, I thematically, it's not that there are no father-son stories, uh, or at least there are stories with fathers and sons in them, but thematically it seems to me, and maybe this has something to do with getting older, um, I'm, I'm, I find myself uh, interested in the, um, in, the, in the nature of time. And um, so, and, and I, if, if, if I were to delineate with each book, I think I could probably go in and uh, discern how the book changed thematically. Um, I hope the voice has changed some. I hope that I'm not uh, writing the same sentences that I was writing uh, early on. Uh, I don't want—I I wouldn't ever call that apprentice work. Um, those are the stories I wrote first, and um, and the stories now. I mean, I think about voice a lot now, voice as a delivery system, um, or as um, David Roderick said, it's not the tale um, that pleases, it's the telling. And uh, so I think I'm writing much better uh, stylistically, uh, sentence by sentence, word by word. It's, it's been fun. Um, when I'm writing a new book, when I'm writing a book of stories, I start when I'm working on that next new uh, that next book, uh, I'm not thinking about the stories. I've already written. I'm thinking about the stories I'm, I'm writing current, uh, currently. And I have been asked, well, um, can you, is it possible for you to say what your best stories are? And, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a cocky answer, I suppose, but, um, uh, but I don't mean it that way uh, because I respond almost inevitably by saying, best story I've ever written is the one I'm going to write next. Uh, it's certainly the one I'm most interested in, and I tell my students all the time, if you don't believe the story you're currently working on, it's going to be the best story you've ever written, don't write it. Don't even begin. So, uh, you know, that's um, that's the journey. As a teacher, I don't know if you've had this question a lot, and I was thinking as I was reading this book how strong your voice is. But I've also had people ask me, like, how do you define voice? And I think mm-hmm. a lot of people might give a different answer, but I'm wondering what your mm-hmm. answer is. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I meant. To, I think I said delivery system, uh, and Mary Carr uh, actually has coined that. Uh, she 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 talks about voices as the delivery system. Um, David Long, who you know, uh, calls voice the brain of the story. 
uh, I, I think about I think of it as a fingerprint, and I think of it as um, um, as unmistakable. You pick up a Flannery O'Connor story, for example, or a Faulkner story, or an Anthony Doerr story, or a Marilyn Robinson um, novel, and there the voice is unmistakably theirs. James Baldwin comes to mind. I mean, pick up any any Baldwin story, for example, and you know immediately, first sentence, you know that it's his. And that's how that's how I think about voice. Well, something I saw in in particularly in your news stories, which doesn't necessarily mean it's theme per se. It could be subject matter and theme can flow out from that. But I did see a lot of interest in men and boys and children who were fatherless or had deadbeat fathers. Mm -hmm. There was an abused woman. There were, I saw a lot of boys in situations where they have to act like men. Um, I saw kids on their own without parents, some uh, power of like nature and the working class, just, just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And a lot of situations where kids yeah, we're left to their own devices. And so I just wanted mm-hmm. to see what your reaction to that list is. Yeah, a lot of my characters are living on the edge characters, but doing the best they can with what they have. Um, and uh, the stories, well, I, um, I, I, I lived in Michigan for almost half a century, and that's where I write from. And so locale is huge for me. And I am I'm interested in the working class um, and, I'm, I'm in, in, in rural landscapes. Um, the l- landscape or setting or place, um, by whatever definition, isn't a backdrop against which the action occurs. It's not a piece of topicality. It actually informs everything that's going on, everything, it, um, uh, character, language, uh, etc., story, all of it. And um, and these are these characters are residents of this particular beautiful but um, but um, difficult place to live. And I'm, I'm talking about physically, and mostly I'm talking about the endless winters in northern Michigan. Um, so many jokes about that. There are three seasons in northern Michigan: July, August, and winter. We hear it, uh, hear it all the time, and the truth is, it they go on for six months. So the kids are also well, not only kids, but the families, but I, but the kids particularly are isolated. They're cut off. Often they haven't even left the state. Um, they mistake Chicago for a state rather than a city, and um, I think there's nothing in this world more fatiguing than boredom. And that's where I get the, uh, some of my uh, most of my ideas for stories, particularly when I'm writing about kids, uh, because boredom is so fatiguing. They concoct ways in which they can be um, known or uh, or more than known, um, legendary, uh, and that's why they get in so much trouble. And as we know, trouble is what interests. Um, as Graham Greene says, "What's to write about happiness?" Uh, so yeah, those are the characters I write about, and the place I write about, and um, and the setting I write about. Why do you think you're drawn to sort of like I would say in some ways like the scrappy, like people, not just people trying to survive, but kids trying to create their rules for the world they live in, trying to mm-hmm. to figure out like not just how they fit in, but just dealing with these and mostly adolescent kids dealing with danger, accidents, maybe just being left on their own to try to figure things out seems of mm-hmm. interest to you. Yeah, they are of interest to me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of individual stories. And um, the first first story in the book, um, I guess, maybe is the um, epitomizes more so than any story, any other story I've ever written <clears throat> when in the in the dead of winter, uh, they do some research and um, start reading about Houdini and his ice dive in the Detroit River and um, and this this is what uh, incites in them um, a um, 
an adventure that, uh, of course, turns out very badly when one of the kids ends up drowning. Uh, so I don't know what else to say about that. It's just you know where this all comes from, why, why it's why why it's generated uh, the way it is. I'm not sure. Um, I never know when I sit down to write a story that this is what's going to happen. It just does, and you know I'm all about um, the not knowing and. Um, and allowing those unconscious and forming elements to sort of take over and lead me where the story wants to go. And, you know, I said early on, I, I try not, uh, I, I, I try my best not to write that same story over and over. And I, and I hope I haven't. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that I haven't written, as you say, stories about fathers and sons and kids, um, left on their own, um, broken families, et cetera. Um, but um, yeah, it is where I find myself often, as, as you say, uh, as, as the subject matter of, of a number of these stories. And it's also true, by the way, in some of the new stories, though I hope they're, they're different. Yeah, so you mentioned the first story, and then we can talk about some of the newer ones, but that's called Wanting Only to Be Heard, which is such an, uh, a title filled with longing. And the yeah. main character, Ashelby Judge, um, was growing up in northern Michigan and people called him Judge and basically he and some friends were spent a lot of time ice fishing and they heard about this dog that went into the ice in one hole and came up into someone's little, I think, ice fishing hovel uh, mm-hmm. somewhere else and tried to sort of reenact it. But within that story is yeah. also his own like relationship with with his his father and right. sort of the mystery of life and and you even say in there in the very beginning um it's also about telling stories and right uh you say in there he was not a natural storyteller who tested his listeners by saying imagine this or pretend that or just think if and on and on suspending their willingness to imprint the local tales into myth he despised the what then what next demands made on every story so I'm just wondering if you want to talk any more about this story. Well, it is. You're right. It's an Ars Poetica. It's a story about writing a story, uh, though I didn't know that. Um, and I didn't really I didn't even know what my themes were. I, 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 I learned about what I was writing um, by reading reviews of my work. Uh, and again, that's because I have no idea when I sit down wh- 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 uh, what the story is going to do, where it's going to go. The story began, if anybody's interested in, in how we generate these things. Um, I was in a restaurant and not deeply enough engaged in the conversation at the table. And so it was uh, eavesdropping, um, listening to a conversation at the table next to me where um, they were talking about a dog that had done just this had been locked in a shanty on um, on Green Lake and um, and the dog had uh, jumped through the spearing hole and swam underwater and surfaced in another shanty where some fishermen were watching their rubber band bobbers uh, intently and this 100-pound uh, dog or 80-pound dog comes bursting up um, through their hole in, into their shanty and uh, that's how that's how the the story began. As soon as I heard them talk about this, I thought that's that's the beginning of my story. Yeah, and it's so interesting the ways that kids and just the symbolism of it that that was the story that they heard, and so they wanted to reenact it themselves with their own body yeah. and to dire mm-hmm. dire consequences. And so your your main character that you write about is kind of left feeling, I mean, guilty for sure, but also like, is he to blame and how, how does he go on after that? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, that's mostly what the story is about. That's the, that's the part of the story that interests me, um, most, um, the story that takes place in, in, in the psyche and in the heart, uh, what the characters are thinking. I mean, I just described what motivates these characters. They're bored. Um, they want to uh, interject some adventure into their lives and they get carried away and they get in, in lots of trouble for doing it. But that's not the story I'm interested in. That's the plot. That's the plot or the through line. What I'm mostly interested in is <clears throat> what the narrator is feeling 
um, and thinking, um, and what and what feeling thinks uh, and, and what um, thinking feels like. Uh, he has to live with this now for the rest of his life. And when um, he he doesn't say he doesn't say when asked that. The, I think the question is whose idea when the when the when the authorities show up. Uh, uh, he asks the narrator whose whose idea was this, and the narrator doesn't. Doesn't um, deny that it was his, though it though it wasn't. So, um, yeah, exactly, Mitzi. That's that's that's. Um, uh, Raymond Carver says, uh, "Fiction that matters is about people. Um, it's about a dog jumping through the ice, swimming into another shanty. But it's about these characters. It's about these kids, and and now they have to carry the." Um, in, in the aftermath of this tragedy, they have to move forward. So that's with them for a lifetime. And that's what the story is really about. And it's a story about love. Yeah, I think, too, there's something, I mean, both with that beautiful title, which was, um, I want to read the, the last paragraph, but also the title of the story collection, is this idea of, of being truly seen, I think, by other people. I mean, you say heard, but it's mm-hmm. it's bigger than that. So, um the, they got the idea because they there was another guy on the ice named Kulanda who whose shanty was unlocked and that was kind of where they were gonna swim from this guy's father's right. t- to this other guy's and so you say in the, in the end we left and my father said it's over and that's when they left like from the police and I knew he'd protect me from whatever came next behind us I could hear them nailing my father's shanty closed and I could see angling beyond us from the shore a single man half stepping and half sliding across the ice I knew that it was Kulanda who should have locked his hut and who was wishing at that very moment that we had broken in and beyond him running between the avenues of shanties a single dog tall and thin and red like an Irish setter but maybe not maybe he was something else barking like that wanting only to be heard I know that you wrote this story a long time ago, but that last phrase wanting only to be heard was so beautiful. And do you have a memory of like that coming out of you? Uh, no, but I'm glad it did. Cause I agree with you. Uh, it was the right uh, ending. It's what I love most about short story writing. Um, I've written four novels and I know from, um, from experience that, there's a difference, a huge difference between a novel ending and a short story ending. Um, when a novel ends, you can feel it coming down. Um, a short story has to do a whole lot more, and it's why it's the most, vex- at least for me, the most vex- vexatious part of writing. The most difficult part of writing is getting that ending right. Uh, it, it's the ultimate synthesis. Everything that accumulates along the way, or maybe it's, it's better said this way, the weight of everything that accumulates along the way has to be held up in that last sentence or two sentences, two, two, three, one, two or three sentences, but mostly in that in that last one. And um, and if it doesn't do that, then I don't think the story is understandable. Does that make sense to you? That everything depends on the sh- in the short story on that ending. Uh, doing, I, I think of it as Atlas-like. I think of those last couple of sentences holding up the, the entire world of that story. And if you don't get it right, it's not finished. And I, there are lots of potentially good stories that I read that don't satisfy because the ending isn't right. It's as if the um, the, the writer just stopped rather than ended the story. Yeah, I think that's true. I think what I notice about a lot of short stories I read and maybe they're more contemporary, but I think that's not necessarily true of what I'm about to say is that they, they pick up on one single moment within the story and they kind of expand it. So it's not like this Mm -hmm. effort to wrap everything up neatly. It usually opens something actually bigger, but it's not Mm -hmm. like trying to touch on every little thing in the story. It's, it's magnifying Mm -hmm. one moment. Yeah. Yeah, well, I agree that uh, I mean that's 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 one of the re- I mean I, I love this, uh, the fire or the white light of the short story. What it can do, it can do so many things that the novel can't do. 
linguistically, you're talking about voice. We were talking about voice earlier, and the um, the what you can do the, linguistically, what you can do in a short story is unsustainable novel length. It just can't be done. And you know, it's why I love the work of, of writers such as oh, Stu Dybeck, for example. Um, in a story that comes to mind immediately uh, called uh, We Didn't. Uh, it's just such a beautifully lyrical story. And um, and so sentence by sentence, word by word, best words in the best order, um, that's what calls me to the short form more, more so than the novel. <clears throat> I, I doubt I'll write another novel. Um, as I said, I've written four of them. I'm glad I did. But this is this is the um, this is this is the form I love most. Uh, you probably know that I started out as a poet. Do you, do you know that? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, I thought, well, I do remember uh, I was um, on a sabbatical, and I thought, if I finish this poetry project, I had a schedule, and I have a little time left. I'm going to try prose for the first time in my life, which I did. And so it went poetry, short story, short short fiction, long fiction, and then back to short story. When my wife Lois um, used to ask me all the time, "Do you think the pendulum will swing all the way back and you'll actually end your writing career where you started?" And um, I was um, unequivocal uh, in, in my in my response, thinking that I would know at some future point what I was thinking and feeling which I know now is ludicrous. And so I used to say, no, 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 I'm just staying with them. I'm going to probably end my writing career, writing um, writing short stories. But no, I'm not so sure. I just don't know. And and this leads me to say this, that another thing you can do when I'm talking about uh, langu- the language of a short story and its unsustainability in, in the long form, um, I'm always looking for poetry's place in the prose. And I can do that in short fiction, and I cannot do it in long fiction. And it's one of the reasons I love it most. So you have a story called Gracie and Devere, and it's about these young, identical twins that look so alike, almost no one can tell them apart. And they're 11 years old, and their father is out of the picture. And their mother finally gets a good job that pays um, enough for them to have rent and um, feel more secure at a toll booth. And she has to leave for long hours. So she leaves them and kind of locks them in the house. And she's like, don't go anywhere. So, of course, the first thing they do is go somewhere. So they get on their bikes and they bike towards a lake. They have their swimsuits on. They have uh, their sneakers tied around the, the handles, but they're riding barefoot. And they're going to go swimming. And when they get to the pond area, they encounter these teenage boys who have nothing better to do than harass them. So they take their bikes and they give them a flat tire and they throw them in. And they're just in this real spot of danger. And at the same time, there's like a truck following them that they saw outside their house. And so they're hoping whoever's in this truck will, will help them out. And the person did help them out, which turned out to be their father, if that's okay to say. And um, it was really so much. It it just made me think about so much about like how mean teenage boys can be and how at very rare moments, you know, they hadn't seen their father. They weren't allowed to see their father. You know, he showed up and saved them, but it didn't necessarily change much about um his ability maybe to see them more just wanted to ask you about the creation of the story. Yeah. And again, I don't know the impetus for the story. I don't know where it came from. Maybe this is an easy out. I'm an identical twin. And uh, so uh, maybe I wanted to write a story about twins, but of course these are twin girls. I also, when I said earlier that I, I'm always looking to break through to be doing things that I hadn't um, done before in stories. There's a story called On This Day You Are All Your Ages. And the reason I wrote that story is because I had failed uh, in my attempts to write a second person story for a long, long time. And this was the first one that I felt was a keeper. Um, Everything else was um, subpar. It wasn't a story that I ever wanted to put into print. And on the Gracie and Devere, um, there are multiple points of view, which I've never done before either. 
And so I'm happy for I'm happy with both these stories for those reasons. They're stories in which uh, stylistically, um, not subject matter so much, but but mechanically, a second person story, which Pam Houston says is is, is really just first person. Uh, second person is just first person embarrassed, and I was happy to do that. And also, I was intrigued by. Um, by I think it's four different points of view. You mentioned the two, the two, uh, Gracie and Devere, the two kids, and the mother, and so it's told from the mother's point of view. First, it's told from the a kid's point of view, and then this the person who you who you referenced, who, who who's in the pickup, turns out to be the father, and then it's told from his point of view as well. That's what intrigued me most about the story, about writing the story. And you captured the menace so deeply of these these teenage boys who really have nothing better to do and they have no reason to mess with these girls except that they could. And exactly. Yeah. And so it's also Mm -hmm. just the danger, you know, moving forward of, of what it's like to be a vulnerable person in the world. Yeah. And, and the, uh, I mean, their adventure, it's not so unlike, is it the uh, wanting only to be heard they too are bored. I mean, they tell their mother this that they have a life too, and as soon as she's gone, as soon as she uh, she, she wants to protect them, she takes all the all the precautions she can she can think of to make sure um, they're going to be okay. And uh, she has keys made, and um, so uh, everything looks fine. And all they're doing is going to this uh, this spill uh, where their mother had taken them earlier uh, because. They want to cool down, and you're right. They're in their bathing suits, etc. But more, more so, it's an adventure. They're on their bikes and they're cruising the town, and they're on their own. And they know they can do this because their mother's gone. They're free. Um, and 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 that's when the father comes in. He's cruising the house because he loves his daughters, um, and uh, because he's not. Because by law, he's not allowed to even be near them. And here he is sort of casing the house. And he turns out to be, a, you know, in the end, he turns out, to, I hope, um, I hope all all the characters, maybe not the other, maybe not the uh, teenagers who are um, such a menace, um, are likable characters. The, the father deserts the family. So, I mean, that's a hard sell. How, how, how does the writer write the, the reader into um, feeling at least some compassion or or degree of forgiveness for what he did um, when those kids were just babies. So that too was was part of the motivation for writing the story. How, how do you set a, a particular character up to be unlikable and then forgive him? Well, that's empathy. And uh, you know, I'm always when I'm writing about characters, I'm writing about. I mentioned Ray Carver. You know, fiction that matters is about people, and that's what I care about. I said that earlier. What's going on in the in in the, in the hearts and minds of these characters? And empathy empathy means to assume somebody else's perspective, to see the world in the in the way in which they are or, or did. And but he does show up as a father in the end and 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 uh, takes charge. And so I hope that uh, I mean I think for the writer to be empathetic about all the characters is to put yourself in a position of grace to see if you can understand why these characters do what they do, what mo- motivates them, right? you know, and then how do you put this in motion, and then how do they feel about it. So, yeah, I mean, we keep circling, um, going through uh, new doors and coming back to, to the same one, and um, maybe that's what the, maybe that's what 20 Stories was intended to do sort of, um, you know, take these circuitous routes and uh, build on what the early stories reflected, but um, in new ways going, and and I hope um, deeper ways going forward. I get the sense too, just based on what you just said, and this idea of grace, that so many of your endings offer offer that, and and I'm not not, not saying epiphany at all, but like a sort of... Mm -hmm. Um, acceptance of self in many of these or acceptance of circumstances like not again yeah. not so it's wrapped up but just mm-hmm. like maybe sinking deeper into yeah. the world that they're in whether they like their 
position or not. I'm thinking of -hmm. of the last story, Squalls, where you have this married couple that's um, in a snow squall. They're driving through a snow squall and it's Archie and Z and Z doesn't really want to be with him anymore. And they've been married a long time and they, they end up hitting a swan on the road and they bring it into the car and hitting that swan and thinking about animals that mate for life and Archie's acceptance of like, he can't, you know, if there's two people who are together and one doesn't want to be there, you can't really fight it forever. Yeah. So I like, I like the word you use circumstances and, um, and, uh, and, and, and it seems to me, um, to a large degree, stories are about characters who find themselves in circumstances that they couldn't possibly have imagined. But here they are. And that's that's the drama of the story. Um, and and uh, I mean, every story we've talked about, it seems to me, as soon as you said that, uh, it dawned on me, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, a Gracie and DeVere are simply on their bikes looking to have a good time and they find themselves in these awful circumstances that, that could have if the father hadn't uh, intervened um, got pretty 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 touchy so um, you know they are rescued and if that doesn't in, at least in, to some degree um, make the make the father um, a father I mean he shows up exactly at the, the time they need him most and I think that isn't that how the story ends, something like that. Um, he tells the the girls um, because he's not supposed to be there. Don't don't mention a word of this to your mother. And I I, I don't have the story in front of me, so I can't I can't remember exactly what the uh, what the ending is. But but yeah, I think that I think it comports with what I said earlier about what I hope a story, what I hope one of my stories will do. Yeah, you're right. Um, they lift the keys from around their necks and make believe lock their lips. They owe him that, at least grateful for having wiggled out of so, so much trouble. And and that's open-ended, uh, isn't it? Um, so, so much trouble, what does that even mean? Sure, it means that, but it means everything that led up to that as well. Well, you're talking about place, and so many of your stories are in Michigan, and now you've moved to Connecticut, um, near where you were born. And mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious if you think, as you move forward writing stories, if place will change for you, whether it's the place, if you'll start writing about where you are now and maybe even think back to when you were a child, or if you look at Michigan differently because you're not there. I think more more likely the latter. I did set up my novel, Lucky Man, Lucky Woman, is in fact set right here in Mystic. Um, this is where I was living before I took the interlocking job in 1975. And so I have written about this area. Um, whether I'm going to be writing about it again or not, I don't know. Um, I'm still, the, the last several stories, uh, the new stories, the stories that have come after this book, um, are still all located in in, uh, in northern Michigan. And the only story in here, of the 20 stories, the only story in here that is set elsewhere is set in northern Maine, but that's only because a Michigan family is vacationing there. <laughs> so, uh, um, no, I don't know, Mitzi. I'm gonna. I mean, you ask me this. Ask me in about two years from now whether whether this uh, this transplant has become the place from which not only I write. Uh, in, in other words, um, the uh, geographical spot I occupy now. Um, will my being here and taking this all in generate stories? I wouldn't say I wouldn't say no, um, but I'll have to let you know later if that happens. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? Yeah, uh, and I mentioned that I started off uh, writing poems, and um, this is a poem I've always loved, and I think it speaks to what. Um, what I hope I've done with my life. Uh, it ends with a question, which is something a, uh, a, t- a teacher, a writer in graduate school told me couldn't be done. Um, he, uh, I-, I turned in a poem that ended with a question, and he said, you can't end a poem with a question. 
And of course, I like to know what I'm arguing for and arguing against. And um, I wanted to make sure that he was right, uh, which he turned out not to be. Um, and I knew this because, well, you know Marvin Bell, and Marvin, al- Marvin always says, um, Marvin always says, know the rules, break the rules. And um, and so I wanted to break the rules. And for the rest of the semester, I um, I wrote I wrote I submitted poems. I turned in poems for workshop that only ended in questions. And so I'm gonna read that poem for you. It's a poem by uh, Antonio Machado. It's called "The Wind One Brilliant Day." The wind one brilliant day called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves and the waters of the fountain. The wind left, and I wept, and I said to myself, what have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? So it's a a poem I dearly love, and... um, it also reminds me of a poem by uh, Robert Hayden called Those Winter Sundays, where he ends the poem also with a question. He says, what did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? And uh, it's a question that um, that I hope I can answer in the end when I'm looking back to determine whether what I've done with my life is um, is what I want to do with my life. I've always believed that uh, avocation and vocation um, should be the same thing, if possible, to actually love what you do, to need to do what you do and not to have to look back at the end and think, I should have done it. I didn't do it, but I should have done it. And uh, that's why I love this poem so much. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes, I can. I will. Um, A brief passage. I, I mentioned on this day you were all your ages. Um, because it's the only um, successful second-person story I've ever read. So since I mentioned it, I'll, I'll just read the first couple, the first few paragraphs from there. On this day, you were all your ages, and the longevity genes are on your side. Your mother, at 81, still owns that same outdated two-bedroom bath-and-a-half red brick ranch where you grew up, a valid driver's license, and a Buick Skylark that, as she says, was built to last. And your father, former special forces, had already lived a dozen lifetimes before he died of unnatural causes. Not a shotgun or a noose or a hose attached to the exhaust pipe, but because nowhere in your family history is there any evidence of that. And even you, Marjorie Breitweiser, a casualty of late states, divorce, and addiction to loneliness, will not be the first. And most certainly not mid-morning on a Saturday in April such as this, clear skies and forecasts going forward calling for temperatures in the upper 60s. If you could, you'd bury the past and live each day as if it were your last. But the truth is, you want her back. That feisty, quirky kid who in recollection keeps kissing her own wrist and calls it practice. Remember that? The 11-year-old who harangues against any elective surgery to correct those severely crossed and oversized eyes? It's a fact, especially when you're tired or upset that they're apt to wander off on their own and almost touch. But why tis out about it is what you'd like to know. After all, your vision is 2020, and as you insist, in the end, that's all that really matters, isn't it? No floaters. No migraines or blackouts or seeing double, no dizziness or trances in the world, as far as you can tell, in perfect focus. So what's the big hurry anyway? You're already wearing braces, and how many correctable features can there be in a single face? Besides, there must have been back then, and may be even now, someone out there somewhere determined to love you exactly as you are. Mm, thanks for sharing that. Is there anything else you want to say about it? No, not that I've. Uh, I think. I think. Um, I think when I know enough to say about it, uh, I already have. So I'll just leave it at that. Where do you write? Well, here um, I haven't yet because I'm still moving in. But um, since 1975, uh, I, well, I had a house built um, about 35 years ago, um, and it's uh, really a fancy treehouse and. 
when it was going up, I had a kind of crow's nest uh, added to it, which became my um, my office, which overlooks an aviary and uh, the Little Betsy River winds through hundreds and hundreds of acres of wetlands, uh, deer crossing, beaver, um, muskrats, uh, even black bears often. Um, and so that's uh, that's where I hide out. That's where I go in the mornings and um, and start my writing. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Well, um, I get outdoors. Um, I work with my hands. Um, I, uh, I'm a, a, a peripatetic. I, um, I walk as often as I can. Uh, I walk myself, if, if possible, into serenity. Uh, it's where I do a lot of my best thinking when I'm quiet and alone and in motion. I fly fish. I hike. I snowshoe. I kayak. I prune and I plant and I rake. Um, I get outside and I work with my hands. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Well, um, yeah, this is a good question um, because everybody needs assistance. There is nobody alive who has never done this without it. Even the uh, the writers we think of as renegades, um, everybody has had the assistance of somebody else. And uh, the only person that I show my work to uh, is my wife, Lois, and we had a ritual whereby I would um, come to that place in the story where I I no longer knew what I was holding. I was stuck in the story, and that's um, as far as I could take it without a little feedback, and I'd ask Lois um, to listen to me read it, which she loved doing. And um, and when I finished, I'd look up and mostly with my eyes, I'd ask, and? And the rule in the house was that she had to like it, but only for 30 minutes because uh, I would come back after that and sit down and then I would ask her what she really thought. And because she wanted to love my stories, she was the best critic, the most insightful, the most astute um, reader uh, of my work uh, ever on the planet. And uh, it's also what I tell my students, find somebody who loves your work because if they do, they will want it to be good and they will turn out to be the most honest readers that you'll ever have as opposed to somebody who is predisposed otherwise because they'll always find a reason not to. So it, uh, yes, it was a wonderful, I mean, to have her in the house. I remember I was asked uh, at Pacific University um, uh, about this, and what I said was my advice to them. My final, my final um, <laughs> sentence to them was, "What all of you need is a Lois." So that's she's my reader. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, if you if you're in the business long enough. Um, and I call it a business because, uh, you know, in some ways it's generated by market criteria, um, which I would never write to, but it, it is it, it is part of where the rejection comes, a big part of it. Um, and it, it's dispiriting. And anybody who says it's not is lying. Uh, nobody likes to hear that, uh, you know, the story or the poem or the essay didn't measure up. Um, but it is part of the writing life. If, in fact, you need to publish, not everybody does, but most people do. And um, you just have to be thick-skinned about it. Uh, take it as a challenge, not 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 so much as a commentary. Um, and strange things happen, Mitzi, uh, in the publishing world. Um, uh, you know, a, a major New York house rejected How Like an Angel, only to end up uh, reprinting it in paperback because the hardcover sales did so well. Um, so, you know, it's not, it, it's, it's, there's so many different facets to this. Um, I remember when I was young, I, I, I started collecting them, uh, maybe as a badge of courage and I would scotch tape all these, and some of them were quite small, all these rejections to the door and, um, to my, to my office door. And one day I went by and I just sort of tugged and there must've been a hundred of them on the door. It was like wallpapered and like a mosaic of rejections. And, uh, and that's what I had to confront each time I went in. And I thought that's good. Okay. No matter how many rejections, prove them wrong. Show them that the next poem is better. Um, that, you know, maybe, maybe they'll, maybe they'll, they'll grab on. 
And then one one day I just sort of tugged it a little bit, and the entire thing came came floating down onto the floor. At which point I just I rolled it into a big ball and just dumped it into the wastebasket. And I thought, okay, enough of that. Point made. And what is your favorite word? Well, um, on this day of our lives, since I mentioned the word peripatetic, um, I guess I'm thinking about peas and about those plosives and how good they feel on the lips when you speak them in, into into the into the universe. But um, but how about this one? Since we've been talking about language, some um, and how about this one? Parallelogram. That's a good word. Don't you think? Parallelogram. It's just fun to say. Parallelogram. Yeah, you got those plosive P's the, and, the, and then those the lilt of those L's. Parallelogram. And uh, then you got, uh, you know, the you got those harsher um, letters, sounds, the G and the R. Parallelogram. It sounds like a good word to me. And it's better than square. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me about your work. It's been a real honor. Well, yes, I remember our talk 10 years ago and loved that uh, I could start this this process again. It's been a while since it's been about 5 years since the book came out and this is so it's it's um it's fun to actually be doing this again. So right. thank you so much for inviting me on the show. If you like today's show with Jack Driscoll, author of the short story collection 20 Stories, Check out my previous interview with him on his short story collection, The World of a Few Minutes Ago. We talked about his dislike for school, avoiding self-imitation, and starting stories from imagery. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.